What is the difference between a conservative and a liberal? You know, I think we all have some idea what it means to be a conservative or a liberal in the political arena. It's not always easy to identify who is which with blue dog Democrats and rhinos, but we have a pretty good idea which is which. Well, the same thing is true in the world of biblical interpretation. Conservatives are those who view the Bible conservatively, who take the scriptures literally, who read it as a historically accurate account of what really happened. Liberals are those who tend to read the Bible figuratively, who, who view much of it as mythological and see it as primarily a book of fictional allegories that teach moral truths. Now, there's some overlap between categories. Even conservatives acknowledge that Scripture contains figures of speech, and not everything is to be taken literally. And liberals do realize that the biblical record contains much that is historically true. But there is a difference. And there is a philosophical divide between the two that makes each dismissive of the other. You know, liberals tend to dismiss conservatives as uneducated and gullible, and conservatives tend to write off liberals as unbelievers. I'll never forget the furor that uh, reverberated through the community when one of the ladies from our church in Kansas confronted a visiting preacher from New Zealand. He had said something about the story of Daniel in a Bible study at the senior center. But the way he said story raised a red flag. When confronted, he acknowledged that he believed it to be fictional. An Old Testament story that was intended to be taken allegorically. Well, he was quickly labeled a liberal heretic. And our ladies spread the word. <laughs> so what if it was discovered that the Apostle Paul used an Old Testament story allegorically? Should he also be branded a liberal? Not necessarily. You know, a story can be fictional or it can be factual. And even a true story can be taken allegorically. To do so is to simply find something of significance beneath the surface of the story. So an allegory can be a spiritual truth embedded or embodied in a historical event. And that's what Paul is going to do in our text for today. So don't be shocked when you discover that Paul wants us to view a passage of Scripture allegorically. He's not rejecting the historicity of an account. He's simply going beneath the obvious to find a deeper meaning. Now, the rabbis love to do that, and Paul was trained as a rabbi. So he's going to take a favorite technique of the Jewish rabbis, one the Judaizers no doubt were using to sway the Galatians 
and use it against them. He knew he could make some real gains if he fought them with their own kind of logic. So he brings his argument about the incompatibility of law and grace, the difference between bondage to the law and liberty in Christ, to a close with an allegory. Again, let's not be shocked by Paul's handling of the text here. Let's simply enjoy it and learn from it. Before we get to the allegory, however, we must have a presentation of the facts behind it, and that's where he begins. We're in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free woman through the promise. Paul begins, tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? Now that's a bit confusing to us, this whole law and listening to the law thing, until you remember that the law was more than commandments. It was also the foundational history of God's work and his people. You know, the Jews referred to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, as the law. But the first five books contain a lot of history. So Paul is telling the Galatians to listen to all of the law if they want to understand it. He calls their attention to one particular account in the law, the story of Abraham and his sons. He begins by reminding them that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. The son by the bondwoman, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. But the son of the free woman, Isaac, was born through the promise. Now, those of Jewish heritage knew immediately what he was talking about, and they knew the story well. It might do us good to just quickly review it. Abraham and Sarah, or as they were known at the time, Abram and Sarai, were a childless couple living in Haran when God spoke to Abraham and told him to leave his father's house and to go to a land he would show him. God also told him that he would make from him a great nation and that all families of the earth would be blessed through him. At that time, Abraham was 75 and Sarah 65. As I mentioned, they were childless. After traveling to the land of Canaan, God reaffirmed the promise, telling Abraham that he would make his descendants as numerous as the particles of dust on the earth and the stars in the heavens. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. God considered Abraham to be righteous because he believed him. By the time Abraham was 85 and Sarah 75, Sarah decided they had to do something to help God keep his promise. 
They were still childless, and she assumed that she was the reason. She decided if Abraham was to have any children, he would need another wife. So she told him to take her handmaiden, Hagar, an Egyptian, as a wife. Abraham listened to her, and Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. But he was not the son of promise. And God would make that clear some 14 years later. When Abraham was 99, God appeared to him again and told him he would have a son by Sarah. And that it would be through that son that the promises would be fulfilled. Abraham fell on his face laughing. He was nearly 100 And Sarah was 90. He couldn't believe they would have a child. When Sarah later heard it, she also laughed. And God appropriately named their son Isaac, which means he laughs. But it was no joke. Even though Sarah was far beyond the age of childbearing, she bore a son, Isaac, a son born through the promise of God, supernaturally. The one through whom the covenant would pass and through whom the Savior would come. That's the beginning of the story, and that's where Paul began. Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. The one born according to the flesh and the one born through the promise of God. Now Paul is going to interpret the story and point out the spiritual truth embedded in this historical account. He says, this is allegorically speaking. For these two women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves, She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem from above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. Allegorically speaking, now Paul is criticized by some for doing this. The rabbis often misused scripture to make a point, and we would be rightfully cautioned not to do so, to take a biblical account, turn it into an allegory, find some deep hidden truth in the text, and then declare that to be what the Bible is teaching is very dangerous. A lot of false doctrines are born that way. But Paul is an apostle, and as such, he is uniquely inspired by the Holy Spirit. If he sees something beneath the surface of a text, not to worry, it is really there. And besides, he didn't come up with a new idea 
from the allegory. He merely saw an illustration of a previously revealed truth. In two women, Hagar and Sarah, Paul saw a picture of two covenants. One from Mount Sinai, which he linked to the earthly city of Jerusalem, and one from the Jerusalem above, the spiritual city of God. In Hagar, he saw a picture of a covenant that brings bondage, a covenant based on law, law that made slaves of those born under it, just as Ishmael was born a slave because his mother was a slave. Paul is simply saying again that those who are under the law are slaves in bondage to a taskmaster who demands perfection. Hagar is a picture of that kind of religious system, a system born on Sinai, but in Paul's day, centered in Jerusalem. On the other hand, Paul says, Sarah pictures a covenant that gives birth to free children, that just as Isaac was born the free son of a free woman, so we who are born of the spiritual Jerusalem are born spiritually free. We are not in bondage to a religious system that demands more than it can deliver, but free to come before our Father in heaven with the full assurance of our acceptability before him. Now, Ishmael was loved by his father. But because his mother was Sarah's servant, his access to Abraham was limited. Both he and his mother were under Sarah's authority. And she restricted Ishmael's access to Abraham. In a similar way, having a relationship to the Heavenly Father based on obedience to the law restricts access to God. If any sin can be found in our life, we lose the right to come before him. Obviously, then, anyone who thinks they can come before God on the basis of obedience to the law is going to be sorely disappointed. It cannot be done. No one can earn an acceptable standing before God on the basis of obedience. The law keeps people away from God just as Ishmael's being the son of Hagar kept him away from Abraham. The good news, however, is that the barren woman would one day become the mother of innumerable children, and that all would be given the opportunity to choose their spiritual mother. We can choose Hagar as our mother, and be slaves to the law, or choose to become sons and daughters of Sarah and be given the same freedom to come before the Father that Isaac had. The choice is ours to make. The Galatians had made the choice to be like Isaac when they became Christians. But now the Judaizers were trying to draw them back into Hagar's household. So Paul makes a very specific application of the story 
as the next step in this allegory. Let's read on. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Paul gets very pointed in his application of the allegory here. He says, and you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. The Galatians were children of promise. They had come into relationship with their heavenly father through a promise, a promise he made and fulfilled, a promise that he would make them acceptable to himself and adopt them into his family if they would just entrust themselves to him. This they had done. They had come into the family of God through a promise. Another story for Ishmael. His birth, Paul said, was according to the flesh. And there was nothing extraordinary about it. Abraham was rather old when Ishmael was born, but even after the death of Sarah, he would father six more sons through Keturah. So there was nothing miraculous about his being a father at 86 when he would go on to live to be 175. And Hagar was apparently a young woman who would be expected to bear a child. That's why Sarah suggested it. Ishmael's birth, therefore, was quite normal, a natural, physical birth. Isaac's birth was through a promise. And Paul says it was according to the spirit. Sarah was past the age of childbearing. She had gone through menopause, and it was impossible for her to give birth by natural means. But God intervened. He caused her to miraculously produce an ovum that with Abraham's help became Isaac. That, Paul says, is a picture of one born not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit of God. A picture of one born into the family of God through the activity of the Spirit of God. It's a picture of the second birth that makes a person into a child of God, into a born-again Christian. Paul then makes another interesting point. He said, he who was born of the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac. And that a similar thing was then going on. The sons of flesh were persecuting the sons of promise. Now, the only record we have of anything coming close to persecution of Isaac by Ishmael is Ishmael's mocking Isaac at his weaning. But we do know there's a lot of animosity between them and their mothers. And that Hagar and Ishmael were eventually sent away from Abraham's home. 
We also know that Ishmael then lived in the wilderness as a warrior and an archer, had 12 sons, and became the father of the Arab nations. I think it's safe to assume there was continued animosity between Isaac and Ishmael. And there's no reason to doubt Paul when he indicates that Ishmael actually persecuted Isaac. In fact, Arab nations continue to be at odds with Israel to this day. Paul's reference to the persecution still taking place in his day, however, was not between the Arabs and the Israelis. He was saying that just as Ishmael persecuted Isaac, so were the Jews, those who were physically related to Abraham, persecuting the Christians, those who were spiritually related to Abraham. Paul knew that persecution firsthand, both as a Jew who persecuted Christians and then as a Christian who was persecuted by the Jews. And now the Christians in Galatia were being enslaved by the Judaizers, and they they didn't even know it. But by putting them back under the yoke of the law, they were putting them back into bondage. And even worse, they were nullifying the cross of Christ and reducing Christianity to a sect of Judaism. That's why the Judaizers and their teaching could not be incorporated into the Christian community in Galatia or anywhere else. And that's why Paul tells them to do to the Judaizers what Abraham had done to Hagar and her son. They were to cast them out. Those who were only born of the flesh even if they appear to be religious and have a religious heritage, are not heirs with those who are born of the Spirit. To associate closely with them, to fellowship with them as brothers in Christ, is to invite conflict and persecution and to run the risk of undermining your faith and robbing you of your freedom in Christ. So Paul ends his allegory with an exhortation. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. So then, brethren, this is the conclusion and the exhortation to his allegory. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. We didn't come into God's family through a religious system with a headquarters on earth that tries to get a man to God through obedience to its laws. No, no, we were born into God's family through the Spirit of God, the free woman who has access to the Father. And our birth was made possible by the Son of God, the one who was sent to free us from bondage to sin and death by taking our sins upon himself and dying in our place. He made it possible for us to be born again. 
He paid the price of our freedom and therefore expects us to be free. Free from sin, free from the condemnation of sin, and free to come into God's presence as the children of promise. Paul therefore exhorts the Galatians and us, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Keep standing firm in your faith that it is Christ that makes you acceptable to the Father. If you have come to Christ in faith, confessed him as Lord, shared in his death through baptism, and are currently trusting him to keep you clean, you are acceptable to God, and Christ will keep you clean. You do not have to put on a yoke of slavery to the law to stay in God's good graces. Now, Paul will make it clear in this fifth chapter that that does not mean you can turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh and fill your life with deeds of the flesh. To do so would be a denial of your spiritual relationship with the Father. But as long as you are trusting Christ to save you, you never have to worry about being good enough or doing enough to get to heaven. Christ has taken care of that for us on the Christ, on the cross. So don't let anyone convince you that you've got to subscribe to their list of do's and don'ts to be saved or to maintain your salvation. And that's not to say that there are no do's and don'ts for Christians. God has revealed his will for us in many things. And if we love him, we will want to please him. But he is not going to disown us for disappointing him. I want to say that again. God is not going to disown us for disappointing him. And our relationship with him is not going to crumble if we fail him. Because our relationship with him was not established by what we did for him. It was established by what he did for us on the cross. And it's the way of the cross that leads home. It's the cross that makes makes us acceptable to the Father and gives us the opportunity to be born again into his family as sons and daughters of promise with free access to the Father at all times. If you want that access, It can be yours through the cross. Claim for yourself what Christ has made available. And don't let anyone, don't let anyone take that promise away from you. The way of the cross leads, let's celebrate that. Let's pray.